Good morning. Will you please join me in prayer? Well, holy God, we are here for you. We are here to hear from your mouth, to hear your words, because your word is life. Pray that we, each of us, every man and woman in this room, would experience life and life abundant because we get to interact with the living God. And so, speak, Lord. Speak to hearts that are weary, that are tired. Speak to hearts that are forgetful, that are in a rhythm and in a cadence. They are here because of habit. And God, what I pray is that our hearts would all be so affected by who you are, by your presence and your power, by your nearness this day. We need, more than anything, you. And so, Jesus, what we're asking on a Sunday like this, on a Sunday that commemorates Pentecost, the fact that your spirit is not just for a person and a time and a place, it's not confined to just a moment, it's actually flooding the hearts of every single person here that is yours. God, I pray that we would have the sort of response to that that is worthy of what you have accomplished. Help us worship you, God. Help us worship you even as we receive your word. Let it be a pleasing aroma to you, God. We're here for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this past weekend, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding. And the weddings that they come and they go, as you know, weddings are celebratory. They're full of good times and good food and good people. And this past weekend, though, is, is one more notch on one of my favorite wedding experiences because uh, of Wedding Josh. Wedding Josh is a persona of a friend of mine. You see, Josh is uh, a brilliant guy, one of my closest friends, and he is passionate about all the right things. He leads a nonprofit that he started that serves teachers and students to personalize their learning habits. And, and yet, in all of his brilliance and all of his impressiveness with his Stanford MBA degree, like with all of that in the backdrop, is who he becomes on a wedding dance floor. <laughs> so we call it Wedding Josh. Uh, I've gotten to experience Wedding Josh 16 or 17 times now, and it is something else. Let me show you some pictures of Wedding Josh here. This is Wedding Josh. Wedding Josh makes you feel like whatever movement you can muster is the right movement to do. He makes you feel like any song that the DJ drops, you know it by heart. Just sing it out loud. You don't know the words, but Wedding Josh makes you think that you do. You see, Wedding Josh is shameless, and his shamelessness is infectious. It's the best of things. It is in direct contrast to me at weddings this past weekend. Uh, I am purposely trying to hide from his gaze and from that of my friends. I'm trying to find whoever I can talk to on the outskirts because I want to sit on the sideline. I don't have the energy for that today. It's not me anymore. Maybe 10 years ago, but, but I'm not wedding Josh. That's not me. And so the contrast is most apparent when, when wedding Josh and I come face to face and he is like multiple buttons unbuttoned, sweating everywhere, ha- hair disheveled, and I'm still wearing my jacket, my tie is still there, and it's that contrast of, oh, you, you've had a ball, and I'm just trying to avoid everything you're doing. And the reason that I do that, to be frank, is that I'm self-preserving. 
I want to preserve energy and maybe self-image, some of those things, because th there's another image here. Uh, these are dance moves that nobody should do anymore. Like, the, he does things shamelessly, and, I, and I'm trying to preserve myself here. And so I don't join Wedding Josh much anymore, but maybe I should. So we've been in a series for the past couple of weeks that we will continue on for the next few that is called Hold That Pose. Not that pose, but hold a different pose, and the pose is to wait. We're learning as a community, what does it mean to really wait on God? In the past couple of weeks, we've been learning from the scriptures, from the Psalms, that if you're in trouble, the scriptures tell you to wait. If you are weary, if you are anxious, if you are tired, if you are at, the, at your wit's end, the scriptures are clear. They're in that space. Wait. And here in Psalm 33, we're going to make a subtle transition. And what we're going to come to find is that the waiting soul is the worshiping soul. The waiting soul is the worshiping soul. And you, right where you're sitting, in all of your self-preservation, in all of your self-image that you're upholding, you are holding back. And the scriptures today are going to tell you, don't do that anymore. The worshiping soul is the waiting soul. Don't hold back. You ready to dive in? Okay. Well, let's look in Psalm 33 together. Look in verse 1 with me as we unpack this passage. It begins like this. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, I want to pause here, and what I want to recognize is that the psalmist begins a psalm about worship, real, earthy, true, and wholehearted worship, and he begins with six verbs back to back to back. That they, they form couplets, and what he's trying to get us to realize is that when you're, when you're talking about worship, when you're talking about praising the living God, it better be all of you, top to bottom, in and out, all of you, I want to show a quick diagram of, of how the couplets break down. So the first action verb the psalmist calls us to, invites us to, is shout for joy. That literally is to put your hands like this with a resounding cry. It's about volume. It's about distance. You're trying to get people in the very back to hear what you have to say. And then there's praise. Praise is the root word for hallelujah. Did you know that hallelujah is the only word that is never translated to anything else? In every language, hallelujah is the same because there's something transcendent about that sort of praise. It, it's, it's a sort of praise that begins deep in, your, in the pits of your stomach. Like maybe you've experienced this this morning or some other time long ago where, where God really stirred your affections and, and something was happening to you right in here and you didn't know if it was the breakfast you ate today or, or if God was doing something inside, but you felt it. And that's what praise in this passage is about. It's a stirring of the deeps within you. So it's about, it's about direction and distance. It's about depths deep within you. But not only that, verse 2 tells us to give thanks. That verb is a casting of your hands. You know when you can't help yourself and you just got to like do something with your body you don't know what to do with your hands? That's what that verb means. Cast them out with exuberance, uncontrolled, unrestrained. But then it says to make melody right after to make melody is a verb that means even with your fingertips. 
like with great precision, pluck the strings just right. So it is exuberant, it is unrestrained, and at the very same time, it is precise. The way that some of our, our leaders on the worship team actually utilize their gifts on instruments, it is that precise. Furthermore, verse 3, sing a new song. So what the psalmist is not saying is go make something up right now. This psalm is a new song to be sung by the people of God. He's saying, sing this with me. Journey down that road yet again. Experience the nearness, the greatness of God afresh, and you will be inspired to sing. Get creative with God. He is so vast, so big. There's so much to be explored. Will you go on that journey again afresh? That's what that verb means. Next, it's to play skillfully. Again, our team is so wonderful. They rehearse really thoughtfully, and, and they're experts in their crafts, and that's what that word means. Get really good at it. Be thoughtful about it. And so you pause, and you consider all these verbs and, and, and all the spaces that they occupy, and it makes you wonder, well, who, who can do that? Who can praise and worship like that with all of you? But that's exactly what the psalmist is inviting you to this morning. Your praise, if you're honest, is too measured. You're too much like me at the wedding on the dance floor. The DJs drop the song. The band is playing the hit. And you're just surfing through the outskirts because you want to you self-preserve something. And the invitation to the psalmist is, no, 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 no. Get in here. Your praise is too measured. It is too restrained. It doesn't consume all of you like the scriptures are telling you. It is making God out to be smaller than he really is. And I want to clarify something this morning. I know that, I know that when you hear the word worship, you, you may think of this hour on your calendar. You may think of a great band where you can just join in from the back with your hands in your pocket. You may think of the few moments in the car from here to there. You may think of the shower in your home where only you can hear that song. And you may be thinking of really confined moments in your day. And yet, biblically, worship is something different entirely. We, even me this morning, I have interchanged the word for praise and worship purposefully. But scripturally, there is a distinction. Praise is part of worship. Praise is to use your voice, to use your bodies, to use all of you to worship the God who is God of all. Worship is something a little more than that. There's going to be a verse on the screen from Genesis 22, and to give it a little bit of context, this is the first time the word worship is ever used in the Bible. First time. It's not in a psalm. It doesn't reference a song. It's not about people coming together with instruments and lyres and harps. It's when Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice his only son the son that he promised him, the son that Abraham values more than anything in the world. And God says, I want you to go to the mountain and sacrifice your son to me. And what does Abraham say in verse five in chapter 22 of Genesis? Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. I don't think Abraham brought a guitar. I don't think he brought the iPod. Nobody uses an iPod anymore. I don't think he brought his phone. see, based on this passage, based on this verse, you want to know the real definition of worshiping God? It is total surrender. 
It is giving your best to God because it all belongs to him. Are you willing to give your best to God? Because that's what worship demands. That is the biblical prescription of worship, total surrender. And so you and I, we we can't just be worshiping on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. when you've gotten out of bed and rolled out at 10. That's not worship. Worship is every single moment of every single day. It is your very best. And so the question is begged, friends, is your worship measured? Is your worship too restrained? Do you hold back from God? I say this as a confession point. I too, I too measure my praise. I too often restrain my total surrender of worship to God. Maybe you've experienced it even already this morning as you've walked in and you don't know why you can't just fixate your mind's eye on Jesus. And here in this place, the invitation of the psalm is keep going, keep trying. There is a wholehearted worship to explore. Don't hold back. Stop preserving yourself. And then he, he guides us into the why. Well, why should I worship like that? Why should it, my praise be measured even just a little bit? In Psalm 33, verse 4, it says, For the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now look in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear him. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. What the psalmist is guiding us into is, you want to know why you should praise him like that? Why there should be no measure or constraints to your praise of him? Because his power is immeasurable. His power is immeasurable. He speaks and it happens. There's a throwback here to Genesis 1 and 2. By the word of his mouth, the heavens. By the word of his mouth, he separated the expanse above from the expanse below. He gathers the sea like we would gather sand on the beach. He speaks and it happens. He commands and it's there forever. You see, his power is immeasurable. But the thing that is really praiseworthy about that is that we as humans are so drawn to people who have power to say things and have the integrity to do what they say they'll do. Am I right? We honor, we approve of, we draw ourselves close to the people who, who say that they'll do something and actually go and do it because it's a God-like character trait. If we're honest with ourselves, if we just take a look up from this building, this day even, if you think about all the news stories you've heard in the past week and month and year, what we recognize together is that our world is a very broken world, and if power does anything, it corrupts. Just think about the political landscape of our nation, of the world. That when any semblance of power comes into somebody's sphere, all of a sudden corruption seems to take over. Many promises have been made, good intentions have been talked about, and yet so few of of people with actual power or with actual ability have the integrity to do what they say they will do. And yet here is a God with immeasurable power, power unlike anything else. And yet his person 
His person is so incorruptible. He does what he says that he will do every time without fail. I pause and think about who is the best person you know, the most trustworthy, the one filled with most integrity in your life. Is it the person sitting next to you? Maybe. They don't compare to this God. They don't. Power corrupts at every level in every human, and yet with God who has all power in all the world, his person is incorruptible. Who is like him? Who is like this God? That's where the psalmist wants us to get to at the onset of this God who created all things, has all power. He deserves your immeasurable praise. Praise him. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just because his power is immeasurable. It's not just because his person is incorruptible. It's also the fact that his position, his position in all the cosmos is enthroned. He is enthroned. Look at verse 10 with me. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Pay attention to verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. There's a lot of all in that passage. Do you hear that that God is is over all. He's looking at all. He is enthroned above all the heavens. Why? Because he created it. That's where he belongs. He's sitting on the throne. And as we consider his purposes, they prevail over every single one of the nations. Every empire will rise and will fall, but not God's. Every plan of yours will fail, likely, but not God's. His will extend from generation to generation. And did you see that he looks down on all of it? He looks out over everything. He is all-knowing. He is all-authoritative. He sits on the throne. And did you catch the verse? The psalmist is inviting us to realize, yes, he's worthy to be enthroned over it all. But then he highlights the one place that he may not be enthroned right now, today. Look in verse 15. He who fashions the hearts of them all observes all their deeds. God created the heavens and the hosts and all that is in it, and he sits enthroned over it all. He created your heart. He fashioned it in your mother's womb. Does he sit enthroned there? I think the psalmist is worried that maybe he does not. Look in verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. You see, what this passage, what the psalmist is trying to help us realize is your heart stands exposed right now, in this moment. The God who created it sees the inner workings of your heart. And as it's exposed, what he sees is that your great hope is in something akin to a king's great army. What's that mean? A king's army is his security blanket. If something goes awry, if his plans go asunder, it's his resources. His 
his, his resources that he has amassed so that he can secure control. Does he have enough soldiers? Does he have enough horses? Does he have enough gold in the treasury? Does he have enough amassed in his bank account and all the pawns he can put out on the table? Does he have enough so that he can secure control over any situation? That's the king's great army. Maybe that's what's enthroned on your heart this morning, the amassing of more so that you might just feel a little bit of security that you're in control. Or maybe it's the warrior's great strength. Maybe it's the security you need in your high potential and your high capacity. You see, a warrior's strength is the thing that everybody knows is great about you, the way you think things through really thoughtfully, the way you work really hard, the way you have all the rapport of the people in your past, the the degrees that you've got on your belt, the resume on your LinkedIn profile. You see, your, your great strength as a warrior is your reputation. It's a security that you need to experience, that you need to keep building up, that you are highly capable. You can do it. You can think your way out. You can work your way out. And what God is saying through this passage is maybe, just maybe, one of those pursuits is sitting on the throne of your heart, that it actually provides you with a false sense of security. And so the question is begged this morning, what do you worship? What do you long for most? When will you finally arrive? When will you finally feel secure? Because that is what sits on the throne of your heart this morning. And what God sees is exactly that. He has exposed your heart because he has fashioned it. I just want you to just work with me for a second, entertain me for just a moment. If you would pause and consider, what are you most fearful of losing? What are you most afraid if it isn't true, if it isn't there, if all of a sudden that thing gets depleted, that thing no longer exists? What would make you feel like, well, I don't, I don't know what in the world I would do next. My hope is laid up there. See, you, you might have gotten really good as a Christian that has sit in these seats for quite some time or in any seat around the city or in any world, but you might have gotten really good at never using Christianese words to describe what's really happening in your heart. You don't say you hope in wealth. You don't say you hope in your next promotion. You don't say that that's where your, your shield is or your fortress is, but believe me when I say when God looks at your heart all exposed, he sees the inner workings of it, that's exactly what he sees. That is your hope. You spent your whole week thinking about it. You can't go to bed because you're, you're anxious about it. You see, friends, we, we all worship something with the whole of our hearts. We were made for it. We were hardwired for worship. And if it is not God, if he is not the one that gets your wholehearted worship, something else is. What I love about the Psalms is that they don't leave us there. Rarely do the Psalms leave you in a place where you're walking out the doors like, well, great. Something else and throw it on my heart. Got it. Got to think about that one. You know, like the Psalms typically don't end in that way. The Psalms, the Psalms drive the reason you can hope in God. 
time and again. They, they, they shed light onto the very thing that you just need to peer into a little bit longer. So look with me in verse 20. Verse 20, it says this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So like I mentioned earlier, this psalm is about worship. It is about total surrender. And in the final thrust, the final invitation of the psalmist is wait on God. Wait on him. His power, immeasurable. His person, incorruptible. His position is enthroned. And guess what? Your posture now is to wait. Wait on him. Now, it begs the question, why? Why a psalm about worship? Why is it telling me to wait? Why is that the final thrust of this psalm? And if we're honest, it's because time is your most valuable resource. Is it not? Time is your most scarce resource. We all have a limited amount of it. It's fleeting every moment and every day. Time is what is most valuable to us. And when God tells you to wait, what is he doing? He's saying, give me what you value most, your best, and put it on the altar. That's what I want. You see, when Abraham was asked, yes, your son, the thing you value most in this life, are you willing to trust me even there? And God says, yes, you, right there in that seat with your time what you value most amidst all your productivity, all your capability, all your power and authority, will you, will you worship me by waiting? Will you be willing to put even your time on the altar? Can you feel why that feels so unnatural for us? We assume that waiting means doing nothing. What the psalm is telling us is that waiting is worship. Waiting is a wholehearted trust Waiting is to believe that God is the one that resolves things, that redeems things, that that makes all things new and right, not you and all of your capabilities, not you with all your resources. It is God and in God alone. And when you trust him like that, when you worship him like that, that honors him. That's wholehearted worship. It's to wait. Now, if if we're honest... We're going to keep digging down through the peeling of our hearts when we begin to expose the fact that maybe something else, someone else besides God is sitting on the throne of our hearts. What we begin to realize is maybe you and I have a view of God that is less than desirable. And maybe you don't believe you can wait on him. You can't with the whole of your heart worship him that way. Because maybe you're convinced that God is withholding from you. That if you were to wait on a God to do the things that that he can only do, to redeem you, to rescue you, to save you and provide for you day by day, he better be trustworthy. And maybe you're sitting here and you're not convinced of that today. Maybe you're worried that maybe he's going to withhold good from me till my dying day. Friends, We have to deal with that. We have to wrestle down the fact that 
What's true for me many days is that I am unwilling to wait on God. I am unwilling to give him wholehearted worship because I am subtly and secretly convinced that maybe he's going to withhold good for me. I have to go take care of it myself. I've got to provide for myself and those that I love. I've got to do it because I don't know if God will. He's withholding. And so how can he ask me to wait? God honored Abraham because Abraham was willing to worship with the whole of his heart, not withholding even his own son. And God said, I will bless the nations through you because this is the sort of worship that delights my heart. And then God the Father did not withhold what he valued most from you and from me. He did not withhold even his only begotten son. He sent him to chase after you to pursue you. And when we, when we pause long enough just to consider, let's just do this hard exercise again because we, we need it. Our hearts need it again. Consider Jesus, the one who is, who is willing to not even withhold his own life for you. That from heaven's heights, from the worship of angels, from the constant praise of all the cosmos, he left that to take on flesh for you, to pursue you, to make sure that you knew that there was nothing in all the world that would separate from you from his love, from his pursuit. But not only that, he was our help, was he not? He was the one who secured us victory in flesh. He died the death that you deserve to die, hung up on a tree. He was scorned and he was shamed. He was ridiculed and mocked and he died a horrific death. He was your help in that moment and he was your shield. You deserved that wrath. You deserve for the God to turn his face away and to never look back, but Jesus got that instead because he did not withhold what he valued from you. And so can we just do this exercise together? Can we believe all over again that God is not a withholding God? He does not withhold good from you. He has actually given you his very best. And if we are just the sorts of people that pause and consider that the psalmist, at the end of the psalm, he, he concludes with, God, please let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. We hope in that. We, on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, get to look back and say, it's true. He did it. His steadfast love is truly upon us. We can hope again tomorrow and the next day because he has proven that he does not withhold good. He does not even withhold his very best. And yet you and I forget time and again, day by day, week by week, we convince ourselves that God is a withholding God and so we do not wait and we do not worship with the whole of our hearts. Can we just breathe in deep one more time this morning that God, God is giving you his very best. He has proven it on the cross. Let us be a people who are willing to worship him wholeheartedly by waiting. That's the invitation this day. The waiting soul is the worshiping soul. Don't hold back anymore. Amen? Let me pray for us. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you again that what the psalmist was placing his hope in, that the psalmist was longing to see come to culmination one day, we as your people get to look back and say, it is finished. (laughs) You are who you say you are. You are a God who is all-powerful, and yet 
incorruptible by all that power. You do what you say you will do. You have proven it on that old rugged cross. You lived and you died and you rose again and you did it for us. So please, Lord, wherever we are this morning, wherever we are convinced that that you don't belong on the throne of our hearts because we can't trust you with all of it, God, I pray that we would see that, that the invitation is extended by your gracious and merciful hand again. You are not withholding today. You are extending a hand to come and not hold back anymore. So God, please teach us now Teach us right now as we respond with praise, as we respond with song and with voices. God, I pray that we will be the sorts of people who can, with abandon, worship the God who redeems us, who rescues us. God, please, let us be a people who worship you with the whole of our hearts, who are willing to wait on a God who is trustworthy. We love you. We are thankful for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.